Welcome to Audio Lecture 5, Policymaking Process. In this audio lecture, we will review the policymaking process. We'll look at historical analysis, social analysis, economic analysis, political analysis, policy, program evaluation, and identifying current proposals for reform. When we begin the process of policy analysis, we begin by identifying the policy to be analyzed. We then look at what is the problem that that policy is directed towards? What's the nature of the problem being targeted? How is the problem defined? For whom is it a problem? What is the context of the policy being analyzed? In other words, what else is taking place in the environment that says this is a policy that we should be considering today? And then look at the choice analysis in relationship to social allocation, um, what are the what are the mechanisms for social allocation? Uh, what are the types of social provision? Uh, is it giving uh, hard services, uh, money, uh, housing? Is it giving um, soft services uh, in terms of uh, counseling or therapy or different kinds of programs? And what are the strategies for the delivery of benefits? And how is it going to be financed? Who's going to pay? When we begin, we can begin looking at the whole issue of, of first doing an historical analysis. And in part, you've been working on this in one of uh, your papers for the class, in which you've looked at how has the problem been dealt with before? Uh, how has the specific policy developed over time? Who initiated or promoted the policy? Who opposed the policy? And then to look at the history regarding the effective approaches to the problem being addressed as well as what were ineffective approaches to the problem being addressed. And to what extent does current policy incorporate the lessons of history? Are we repeating the mistakes of the past? If so, why? And so if you look at the current national health care debate, maybe that's something that, that's important. When we have did this before in the, the latter part of the 1990s, uh, what m mistakes were made then? Are we repeating those today? Uh, what, what is the problem? Are we talking about health care reform? Are we talking about social insurance reform? Uh, the problem is muddy, depending on who you talk to. And for whom is it a problem? Clearly, for those people who have no health insurance, it's a problem. But what about the vast majority of people who do have life or do have health insurance. And for them, 
what's the problem? Are they going to be better off? Are they going to stay the same? Or are they going to be worse off? And those become some of the critical questions that, that we ask today in that debate. So in doing a social analysis, we begin by describing what's the problem. What knowledge do we know about the problem? What, what are the research findings? And then what is the population affected by the problem? How big is it? Is it a large group? Is it a small group? What are the defining characteristics of that population? And how is that population distributed? Now, that's, that's one of the, the key issues that we begin to look at because typically we have tended to be very conservative in this country and very incremental social change that we've only developed more aggressive kinds of policies when the majority of the middle class sees something as a problem. And then to look at the value base in conflicts with values. And that's, again, a major theme throughout uh, that I've emphasized, is to look at the underlying value biases. So what are the major goals of the policy? What are the manifest goals in terms of the stated goals? And what are the latent goals, the unstated ones? It's always kind of interesting when you look at the Head Start program, that the Head Start program was really developed uh, for uh, poverty level children uh, to get a head start on school so that they would uh, catch up uh, and uh, be uh, on par with, with uh, their non-poverty um, students. And in terms of all of the evaluation of Head Start, we've never found that that, in terms of the manifest goal, uh, really had much of an impact. Uh, from that sense, the program was not that successful. However, with the latent goals, in terms of parent involvement and socialization and so many other factors, uh, the program has been uh, a resounding success, and so the program has stayed. But more in terms of the manifest, uh, not because of the manifest goals, but rather because of the latent goals, uh, the unintended goals that, that took place with the program. And what's the degree of consensus? One of the problems with healthcare is that there's not overwhelming consensus, both in terms of what's the problem as well as then what's the solution. We also, in, in any kind of policy analysis, always need to do an economic analysis. Uh, what, what is going to be the uh, cost-benefit analysis? How much is this going to cost us? Um, in terms of health care, we look at will, will in the long term it be a budget uh, reducer or, or will it be a budget increaser? Uh, the political analysis, politically, uh, who gains? What, what's the, the, 
the base of, of uh, uh, power? Uh, what's the power base of opponents? Um, has the, the policy been legitimized in terms of, of you know, how is the policy going to be implemented? Is it going to come about through administrative policy making, through judicial policy making, or through le legislative policy making? And, you know, that's important from the standpoint that much of our policy really gets printed and proclamated in the Federal Register as really administrative rulemaking by uh, different federal departments. And uh, that those policies then really become uh, what, what guides and shapes the programs. So much of the policy is not made through the legislative uh, process, but really through administrative rulemaking. So it's important that if you want to change policy, you have to understand how that takes place as well as how do you move something uh, through the legislative process. And then, of course, judicial decision making, um, uh, some of our greatest leaps forward in terms of areas like civil rights uh, have come about through judicial uh, decision-making. Um, one of the things that we can also look at is to look at the policy or program evaluation, looking at outcomes in relation to the stated goals, what are the unintended consequences of the policy, so the policy or program cost effective. So those become some of the key factors that we need to consider and look at as we consider policy. Now, how do we de develop or identify policy issues? One of the, the interesting questions on, on any issue is, does a policy issue exist and is it sufficiently important to merit attention? Uh, you know, at what point does a social concern become a social problem? What factors and forces, interests, and persons generally support or oppose uh, the continuation of the status quo? How and where should reform activity be initiated? And does a proposed modification in policy have, have any chance of success? So those become some critical factors to look at. Now, policy takes place at, at differing levels. Basically, we can begin with the macro level policy, the broad laws, regulations, or guidelines that provide the basic framework for the provision of social services and social benefits. We then have a meso-level policy, and this is the administrative policy that organizations generate to direct and regularize their, their operations. The personnel policy, uh, the financial policy, the standard operating policy. And then at the micro level, it's then how we translate the macro and meso level policies into actual services to clients and how they get delivered by the person who is employed to deliver services. So we've talked about 
social policy related to social problems. So again, we look at what's the complexity, what's the size of the problem, what constitutes a social problem versus a social need, what political value and cultural factors influence whether, when, and by whom specific conditions are really labeled as, as a social problem. Now, we can also look at, at how we classify issues. So if we, we take substance abuse, is it a physical problem? Is it a mental problem? Or is it antisocial behavior? How do we classify? Because how we classify will in part depend how we then begin to, to uh, develop solutions. Uh, if, if we see it as antisocial behavior, we will then move to criminalize the activity, where if it's a physical problem or a mental problem, uh, we'll then really look more at coming up with a solution of treatment. It's also important to look at, at how we break into subtypes. We've often in the past talked about child maltreatment. That's been broken into then talking about child abuse and child neglect. Then within child abuse, we talk about child abuses in relationship to physical abuse as well as sexual abuse. And that's perhaps important because if we were just to talk about child maltreatment, it then becomes very difficult to, to wrap our hands around really what is the problem and how do we develop uh, a particular, uh, you know, how do we develop a particular solution to dealing with the problem when it's so large and so ill-defined but if we want to look then specifically at child sexual abuse, which really is, is a very different dynamic than child physical abuse. And even within child physical abuse, you look at uh, abuse that, that takes place as a result of lack of impulse control versus uh, abuse that takes place out of uh, very cruel and sadistic behavior in terms of, of you know, uh, burning with a cigarette butt or uh, twisting an arm so that it pops out of the socket. Uh, those become different kinds of situations that I think call for different kinds of solutions. We've talked previously as we've looked at, at poverty, how do we define then social problems and the many different kinds of definitions we can come up with and how definitions are, are really also motivated by our, our worldview, our personal values, political ideology. So if we take something like poverty, is it measured by an inability to purchase some acceptable amount of goods and services? And what level or amount is sufficient to place someone at below or above poverty? And that's, that's an absolute approach. 
or do we measure it by comparing the economic condition of certain persons, such as low-wage workers with others? A, a relative comparison. Uh, you may live in a community where the average income uh, is $60,000, and you may be employed earning $20,000 as a single person. Well, as a single person, that would be well above an absolute definition of poverty. But in relationship or relative to people in that community, relatively, you may be poor. You know, and is, is it accompanied by life-threatening conditions, such as hunger, the length of time in the condition, uh, mental illness? is a mild bout of depression, a, a mental illness, or is it a normal response to a life event? At what point does something become a problem? So basically when we, we look then at the problem, how does the problem manifest itself? You know, how do we know it's a problem? How does it look? What, what are the signs of the problem? How do we recognize it? Is there a phase of, of problem development? You know, when we look at, say, an alcoholic uh, and the, the, the process of alcoholism from, from first to, to later stages. Uh, threshold, you know, at what threshold of consumption, say, do we classify a person as a social drinker or as an alcoholic? You know, and again, we can have a relative standard or an absolute standard. And then oftentimes the development of typologies, which assists us in trying to understand the problem. It gives us assumptions about the problem and how we see it and what are causal factors so we can better explain what's going on in relationship to using analytic skills to measure rates, uh, the ratio of persons to a larger population or reference group. Incidence measures the ratio of new cases to a larger population group or prevalence, measures the number of persons who are in a specific population at a specific time. Now, when we define then a social problem, we can look at felt need. I feel it's a problem. It measures the importance of a social problem by examining the extent that persons believe they experience certain kinds of problems. So it's my saying, I feel I have a problem, or I feel there's a problem in our community. Then there's the express need that measures the importance of social problems by examining the extent persons actually seek specific kinds of services. So we can say, well, who sought services last year? How many? Expert need, comparative need. The existence of unmet needs is inferred indirectly by comparing the distribution of services in a different community. Now, all of those are different ways. Each has its own problem. For instance, felt need is very subject to one's own personal biases. Express need is likewise potentially biased because perhaps only a few people 
know about a particular service. So they're the only ones who seek it. And so if you're only looking at the number of people who seek a service, uh, perhaps there are large numbers of people out there who don't know that they could be seeking the service, so uh, they don't come out. Um, expert need, uh, again, um, uh, you, know, you, you rely on research, uh, but again, it, it can be conjecture and uh, there can be problems and it, uh, it, it, there's not an exact science to it. Or, you know, comparative need, and we've done this sometimes in program development, looking at what's the need for, uh, say, um, uh, mental health transition services in a town similar in, in size to the one where we have our program and what's the demand in that community versus in our community and, and do we need to increase capacity. So those become some, some different types of issues that we must consider in terms of defining social problems. Now, how do we deal with problems? Uh, you can see on the slide a variety of ways, everything from public health to medical, behavioral, deterrent strategies, a wide range of different approaches. And again, we come back to value uh, biases and how we see the problem in terms of what solution we're going to, to use. So we look then at the process of problem analysis and identify the way in which a problem is defined and you'll find some different definitions uh, within your resource folder. Uh, identify the causes to which the problem is attributed. What's the most serious consequence of that problem? What's the ideology that, that guides us and who suffers, who gains? What were the past solutions? What was our concern about human character, the moral issues? Concerns about industrial output and economic progress, the economic issues, political acceptability and ease of administration. So those just become some of the key factors that we need to consider in analyzing policy. But as we've emphasized important, and I, I stress the importance of looking at particularly the historical context of policy, because most often policy is shaped within the context of its time in response to unique issues and factors that go, are taking place at that time. So when you look at the development of the Social Security Act, and the fact that it was developed during the Depression at a time of tremendous need, do we need to modify it today in terms of meeting the conditions of a different age? Or does it service well today, even though it was developed at a different point in time?